0: Uh, excited to be able to read this chapter to you. Uh, growing up in a Christian setting, in a Christian school, a Christian home, uh, with all the doctrinal knowledge I had, everything I knew, I thought that's all there was to being a Christian. Uh, but here is where I was missing it, and this is what uh, the chapter, one of the chapters the Lord used, I believe, to save me. Uh, so let's look to his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse uh, 31. and uh, we'll read uh, through uh, all of chapter uh, 13 uh, 1 Corinthians 12 pick up in verse 31 but earnestly desire the higher gifts and i will show you a still more excellent way if i speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love i am a noisy gong is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Reading verses 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And our final reading is found in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, reading from verse 10 through uh, 16. Ephesians 4. Picking up in verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Lord, we thank you so much for these passages, Lord, I personally thank you so much for 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Lord, please, we just ask that uh, your spirit descend upon us this morning. May our ears be open, Lord, may your spirit rest on your brother as he brings us your word. Uh, may we be encouraged and challenged, dear Lord. Uh, may we grow in your likeness. May we move past mere head knowledge and grow deep in our love as a result of that knowledge. Be this we pray in your name. Amen. We may change the uh,
1: the format this Wednesday night, uh, because I think there's an awful lot of men who need to repent of the lying and cheating they did last night uh, (laughs) as we were bowling, so uh, or at least the the blasphemy that I heard on a couple occasions. 1 Corinthians 13, if you would, Uh, some of it owing to me, thank you very much. I had no idea how bad I could bowl. Now I know. Um, as we were singing that last song, I couldn't help but think of uh, friends of mine, Chris and Kayla Huff. Uh, Chris uh, pastors Trinity Baptist Church uh, just outside of Shreveport, Louisiana. And in um, uh, this week, they sent out a notice um, that this week, January 16th, would have been the 23rd birthday of their son, Hayden. Uh, uh, It's not, because at the age of 15, Hayden and a friend of his had decided to go fishing. Uh, They took a wrong turn out of a side road and were struck by a truck, and Hayden was killed uh, on the spot. His dad was the first one on the scene and um, uh, was there as his son passed into eternity. But as they wrote this week... Uh, The Lord has used Job 19.25 to give us comfort and refreshment. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And I watched them and walked with them through the loss of their teenage son. And was just astounded at how they knew how to sing blessed be the Lord in all circumstances. And continue to do so. Extraordinary. Um, that's, That's where we need to be. It was a great joy for me while I was away, Uh, and we were back, as I said last week, in the promised land for Texas for uh, for a short visit, and uh, I was continuing to listen to what was being preached here on the web. That's a great opportunity to keep up, and it was really fun for me to hear the different speakers, especially the last three that we had just uh, focusing on chapter 12 and how they worked with so much continuity. And it's not that we get together and, and compare notes ahead of time. That isn't what goes on. Although we may have some discussions about the, pa- the passages and, and send some notes back and forth. We let each one develop uh, completely on their own. And we trust that as each one works through the word that will and works through the text, we'll end up with a shared core of doctrinal truth. And that has proved to be the case uh, all the way through. And in addition, then, each one brings the nuances of their own personality and their own insights and the, the flavors and the, the colors that come with that, which is a great display of exactly what we're talking about in this topic of spiritual gifts. That's how it should be working within the body. Each one brings those things And in fact, that's the way of of all creation, the way of God in all creation. I'm not a scientist, nor have I ever played one on TV, but I've been told that the entire universe is comprised of the very uh, atomic and subatomic particles uh, that make up everything. Uh, Nothing new there, but they're arranged in endless combinations. Now, this was the model that they used when I was in school. Uh, of course, it was only black and white back then, and uh, and scratched on the side of a stone. But that's uh, <laughs> that's what it was, and that was before they had discovered even smaller particles like photons and bosons and neutrinos and gluons, and and then there's up and down and bottom and uh, strange and charm quarks. And if you want to know about them, I haven't got the slightest idea. Uh, but and in studying God's word. Uh, In this team effort, like we've been doing it here, this kind of tag team, we're all working and keeping with the same essentials, but arranging them with varying emphases and shades of the truth as that truth is refracted through each individual uh, speaker. And uh, so I want to thank Ed and Daniel and Ken especially, or Jim, uh, for the managing chapter 12 the way they did, three of them. Uh, because they really set the stage for this extraordinarily important 13th chapter. And in fact, this chapter then paves the way for the balance of the letter. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a chapter about weddings, I'm sorry. Uh, I know it gets read at almost every wedding, but that isn't what's going on here. There are much higher, grander things going on in this passage. Paul is wanting the Corinthian church and by extension, the Church of Christ in every age and place, to recognize at least the, the central things that each one of the speakers have taken us back to each time. Let me just rehearse those really quickly with you. And the first is that everyone in the body of Christ receives gifts from God through the Holy Spirit to be used for the good of the church. We get it in 1 Corinthians twelve seven. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. So if if a gift of the Spirit isn't for the common good, if it's just for you, something's gone awry. We're going to unpack that more this morning. So notice just a couple of things in that verse. To each is given, no exceptions. Y'all have a gift, y'all have to use it. As Jim appealed to us last week with all 'all, y'all, which is the, you know, in Texas, they have all, they have y'all, and they have all y'all. And and all y'all is is the the ultimate, that's that's everybody, and that's what's going on here. Secondly, that it's for the common good, it's to bless others, not to scratch your personal itch for usefulness. It's good to have an itch for usefulness, that isn't why you're given a gift. Uh, It's not for your self-image, it's not for recognition, etc. It's not to get our ministry, but it's for the common good. So that has to be kept in mind out of this verse. And what that looks like in more concrete terms is exactly what we're going to be exploring this morning in chapter 13. Secondly, there are different kinds of gifts that operate different ways to meet different needs. And this was teased out by our speakers as well. Um, There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit and there are varieties of service. They do different things. Uh, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, when the text says that there are varieties of gifts, that is not an understatement by any stretch of the imagination. There are four major passages in the New Testament that spell out spiritual gifts. Uh, and if you look at those, uh, there's about 22 separate spiritual gifts mentioned, if you put all all four of those passages together, Uh, Romans 12, uh, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and and, um, both in manner, some people have been given a specific ability, which may or may not abide, we may talk about that this coming Wednesday night, and others may have equipping for a particular office. Uh, within the church, but those are all gifts, and they they have a great variety. So there's there's gifts of giving, and gifts of helping, and organizing, and teaching, and discerning, and, and encouraging, and comforting, and hospitality, and all kinds of things that that factor in there. And you don't have to have all of them. Matter of fact, you don't have all of them. You 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 got your your little focus, and as the Holy Spirit sees fit. And when it comes to the gifts operating in a variety of ways. You only need to do a really quick survey or think about how Scripture speaks differently about the gift of prophecy, for instance. And I know there are some who would recoil. Oh, prophecy in the New Testament era? Well, sure. But that's because prophecy functions in a number of different ways. It isn't all predictive prophecy, like you would have in Daniel or the book of Revelation. That's there. But in Numbers 11, for instance, or in 1 Samuel 10, or in Acts 2, or in a number of other places, prophecy has more to do with declaring the great works and praising God. It's not a revelation of some new truth. In Ezra and Nehemiah, there are great examples of how prophecy is warning, is directing God's people to come back and how to do the the tasks that he's already directed them to do. And so so it's, it's useful in organizing and motivating and mobilizing the body of Christ. Prophecy in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially, is about warning and calling people back to repentance. And we still need that in this generation. Uh, we, we never lose the need for those kinds of prophetic gifts. In Acts 11 and in Re- Revelation and in Daniel, you might have some, some predicting of the future, but that's not the typical. Um, upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation are three uses of prophecy that you get in chapter 14. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. Uh, also in chapter 14, the gift of prophecy can be used for conviction of sin and for teaching. And it is above all a gift for testifying that Jesus is the Christ. Let me, you get it out of, uh, out of Revelation 19.10 that the, that the spirit, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. It's fascinating. That last one is the very same use of prophecy that earned Jan, uh, John the Baptist the, the title prophet by no less than Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus said, and, and all this because of one thing, he pointed to Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John revealed no new truths, he made no predictions of the future, he Performed no miracles, and yet Jesus says, "Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist." Isn't that extraordinary? So he wasn't looking for for strange manifestations, but this glorious ability to declare the who Jesus Christ is. Something we can all enter, we should all be entering into. So there are all, all different kinds of gifts that operate different ways and meet different needs. And then the third idea is, but these are all given at the sole discretion of the Holy Spirit as he deems best in any time, place, or circumstance. That's what you have here. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. That also implies that sometimes a gift may just be a one-off. It may not be something that's permanently a part of your makeup. He may use you one time. Uh, we discussed it just the other day. I think it was Ken Beaton who reminded me. You know, Balaam's donkey only spoke once. That might be you or me. We, we might be used in a particular gift only one time, and that's legitimate. Remember, Jesus' ministry was only three and a half years. What was he doing the previous 30 years? He was the son of God. Nobody could speak with more authority and clarity and absolute truth than him. And yet he wasn't doing it. As it was not his time. Totally dependent on when the Holy Spirit would use him. John the Baptist, his whole ministry may have been somewhere between a year, six months and a year. That was it. You go back into the Old Testament, the the prophet uh, Hosea, probably his whole ministry lasted less than a year. And you wonder, well, am I willing to let the spirit use me when and how he wants? And if he doesn't pick me up to use me again in that same way ever again, that's fine. I just want to be available. It's an extraordinary place to be and it's very freeing. So you won't have to go through some spiritual inventory like Daniel was talking about Wednesday night. Find my gift and then make sure I operate in it all the time. Well, that's, that's not exactly the way that works, unless you've got the gift of giving, in which case you should be giving all the time. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll expect to see if you manifest that in the, in the offering box. Uh, but again, maybe we'll, we'll explore some of this a little more on Wednesday night. So you've got those three ideas that everyone in the body of Christ receives gifts through the Holy Spirit to be used for the good of the church. And there are all different kinds of gifts that operate different ways and meet different needs. And these are given at the sole discretion of the Holy Spirit as he deems best in any time, place, or circumstance. And all of that brings us right back to where Jim ended last week at the end of chapter 12. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. That's a good thing. And I will show you a still more excellent way. It's good to desire a gift. But there's a more excellent way to accomplish what God's after than desiring a gift. And we're going to see that unpacked. Now, Jim rightly located this desire in wanting the higher gifts to be manifest among us in the ministry of the word. That is absolutely vitally important. We cannot grow except we grow in truth. That is, that is concrete. But Paul goes on to say, as good and reasonable as it is to desire a spiritual gift, or even to desire that the ministry of the word be prominent in the church, and it must be, that's part of our call, the spirit has an even more excellent way for us to pursue in the Christian life. Better than looking for your gift. I don't want you looking for your gift today, I want you doing something completely different. I think the passage is calling you to something completely different. Love which he will not leave us to imagine for ourselves, he's going to unpack in this passage. In a bit of wordplay, the Spirit is saying that the thing that is better than having or exercising gifts, and this is going to blow some of your minds, is simply to love God's people, the church. And when you love God's people, the environment in which a gift will be manifested is automatically there. We'll see, that. we'll see that unfold. Um, the gift is just a means to an end that God has in mind in giving gifts in the first place. So love aims us at accomplishing his goals whether or not you even know what your gift is or how to use it. And that's what makes this way that he speaks about so excellent. I don't have to be in a, a big consternation about finding it I just have to be about the business of loving God's people. Now make mo- no mistake, Paul's point here isn't that it's better to have love as opposed to gifts. His point is that every believer has gifts, but apart from their right exercise in love, they're not only worse than useless, they're destructive. That's pretty important. In a way, all that we've looked at these past three weeks concerning spiritual gifts it's been a little bit on the theoretical side. Paul's been kind of building a foundation for us. But this chapter is where the rubber meets the road. This becomes the practical chapter. How do we begin to put this into action? Then chapter 14, he's going to give us an example using prophecy and tongues and say, let me show you how that might work out in the local congregation and, and tease it out in a, a number of different ways. So now we get down to answering the question, well, what does all this talk about gifts have to do with me? What, what do i what am I supposed to do with this average individual Christian or anybody else and again it isn't about taking some sort of spiritual inventory or getting a sense even that you have a particular gift you might or you might not it's higher and at the same time it's easier uh, he's going to demystify this entire discussion in these thirteen short verses. And we really could take a month just on these 13 verses. They're extraordinary. Uh, in, the, in the laboratory for laser energetics at the U of R, uh, they, uh, the, they have the omega laser there. The omega laser has 60 different beams. They focus all 60 beams on a little tiny polymer ball that's only one millimeter across. So I've I've got all these beams. I didn't have the time to draw all 60, forgive me. Um, But I I drew 12 of them. And they're all pointing at that little tiny ball. Inside that ball is just a couple of of molecules of uh, uh, tritium and deuterium. And and they bombard this little ball with all of this light. and, And not just a little bit of light, 60 terawatts of power when they let that thing go. And just to give you a rough idea of what 60 terawatts is, that's enough juice to light up 60 trillion 60 watt bulbs all at once. Now, trillions a lot. Go online if you want little illustrations of what that looks like. But that's how 1 Corinthians 13 works. It serves as a focal point. It draws together all kinds of theology from all over the Bible and brings it down to this one place. It's extraordinary so that you you get a, a feel for eschatology and for redemptive history and for God's plan for the church and each individual in it. It's just amazing how it draws all this together and how it ties together so much of Scripture and the biblical themes throughout the Bible is absolutely
0: staggering.
1: So don't let the brevity of this chapter or the seeming simplicity of it fool you. The implications are stunning. Now, the chapter itself divides up very easily. It's not hard to figure out. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is going to address the issue of the absence of love, why that's problematic. In verses 4 through 7, he's going to talk about the anatomy of love, what love really is from God's perspective as it's exercised in the body. And then in 8 through 13, he's going to talk about the aim of love. There's an eschatological aspect to this. What's God aiming at in all of this that he's doing with spiritual gifts and how they function and what goes on? So we'll take these in order. The absence of love. And his first point is simply this. That without love, I do, am, and gain nothing. No matter how gifted I am. That's pretty stunning. I don't know if you've ever bumped into people who are gifted in certain ways, but don't live in very loving ways. Paul says, nah, doesn't work. Doesn't work. The discussion at hand is about spiritual gifts operating in Christ's church. And the first thing, the first thing that the Holy Spirit through Paul wants to make clearer to us is that no matter what gifts or gift or gifts anyone might have, no matter how spectacular they are or seemingly necessary they might be, if they are exercised apart from love, they're not just useless. They're destructive. And he's going to give us three illustrations in these first three verses. First one comes in verse 1. Here's a for instance, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, notice he says, even if I speak in the tongues of men, everybody focuses on the tongues of angels here. He says, I don't care if I can speak articulately in man's language, in communicating biblical truth, but I have not love. I'm a noisy gong. Or a clanging symbol, And no doubt Paul starts here because, no pun intended, verbal gifts make the most noise. Gifts like prophecy, gifts like tongues, interpretation of tongues, uh, a, a word of wisdom, a, a word of knowledge, that sort of a thing. And so they call the most attention to themselves. <clears throat> but here he would be referring to preaching and teaching and exhorting and imparting wisdom or knowledge to one another, even the gift of tongues if it's supernaturally speaking in languages that are unknown to the speaker. The fact is that if somebody has a gift for speaking publicly with passion and clarity and even communicating biblical truth accurately means nothing if that gift is exercised apart from love. That's hefty. Because many an individual has thought, well, if I just give him truth, that's all that matters. No, it isn't. The delivery system is as important as the thing that's delivered. You can't separate the two. They have to come together. In his words, he says, I'm just noisy, if that's the way it is. Uh, That's all, just noisy. And it means absolutely nothing in terms of how I might see myself. Or how I hope others see me, I'm just noise. That's a powerful warning to all of those who imagine that their natural gift to gab, that's my grandfather used to say about my brother and I, my older brother and I, Scott wasn't around, he'd say, you know those Ferguson boys, they have the gift of the Blarney. You know, give us a topic, we can talk endlessly, you all know this very well. But whether that's you've got that natural gift to gab or even a supernatural gift, a spirit-granted ability to preach and teach, that doesn't make the individual anything. And that gift is more important than, is more important than bearing the character of Christ. That's problematic. So as long as, as they can preach and teach well, we think, in some cases, then the church should sit up and listen and give them their rightful place. And Paul says, no. I don't care what their gift is. They, they can be the best preacher on planet Earth. If they do it without love, it's a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And it's useless. That's pretty important for us to grasp. If push comes to shove, it's better to have someone whose presentation skills might be lacking, but who in genuine love for the souls of God's people, communicates his word accordingly. It's better than to have the most dynamic communicator who does it to be seen by others or to stoke their ego or to build a name or a ministry for themselves. Set it aside. Here's the point. The interior disposition determines the true effect and value of the ministry. We cannot disconnect the interior disposition of the individual and the exterior act. They have to be in concert with one another. We're going to come back to this. But uh, many a good and godly and faithful minister of the word has been sidelined in favor of those with more flash, more more ability, more persuasiveness, more more oratorical power, and that's been to the eternal detriment of the souls of men. Reading a little while ago, as, as I'm reading now, um, the works of John Newton. I think I'm in volume three. <clears throat> in volume one, there's a little bit of a biographical sketch of John Newton. It's written by a close friend of his who sat under his ministry. And he talks about the fact that Newton, in fact, was not a very good preacher. Great writer. But he said he wasn't a good preacher. He was often kind of disconnected in his notes. He often didn't, had a little bit of a stream of consciousness thing that went on. And, and sometimes he was a little hard to follow. But he loved us so much and prayed for us. We wouldn't have any other pastor. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what he's getting to. It's better to drink from a clean paper cup than from a gold-plated sewer pipe. I'd rather have because if it's coming out of a sewer pipe, no matter how the pure the water is that's going in, it's contaminated by the pipe, by what's already in there. And and Paul says I don't want that happening. Not for the church. So, mere noise, no matter how pretty the gong, benefits no one. And in the end, without love, all my preaching is only noise and accomplishes nothing without love. He gives a second example. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Perhaps... Perhaps somebody has extraordinary insight into biblical truth or or the courage to believe God such that, that they have no doubts about anything that he's revealed in his word or and, and might venture great things, uh, great enterprises in his name. So what? But it's amazing how in the modern church we kind of look that way, don't we? Even a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal plays no tune and does nothing. And so here, being this gifted, apart from love, says nothing about who or what I am. It's interesting what he says here. I am nothing. Even if I'm this great theologian with all of this marvelous insight, without love, I'm nothing. One's mind runs immediately to the likes of Solomon. Scripture declares that he was the wisest man who ever lived. He was one who deeply understood all sorts of mysteries, and he did so supernaturally. Remember, he had prayed for that wisdom, and God gave him that wisdom. It was a a unique manifestation of the Holy Spirit through him. But he was a man whose love for God was horrendously compromised, as was his love for a wife. He proved that he couldn't be faithful to either one. And with all of his wisdom, God given as it was, supernatural as it was, he lived like a fool. He became an idolater. 700 wives, or 300 wives, 700 concubines, this whole mass of people, a thousand somebodies. For all intents and purposes, he ended miserably. And in the end, his lack of love reduced him to nothing, even though his supernatural gift was so extraordinarily profound. You might be one here today who's been given a keen eye for truth and a discerning mind to sort out doctrinal mysteries with precision. But if you don't have love, brother or sister, and administer your gift in love, you are nothing. Paul's being pretty heavy here, isn't he? And that leads us to his third illustration. Say I give away all I have, and and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So if I speak well, but have love, I do nothing. And if I know oh so much, but have not love, I am nothing. And now, no matter how extreme my supposed examples of personal privation proved to be nothing too. get me nothing even if i'm willing to suffer extreme personal privation in extraordinary acts in the name of religion or philanthropy if i do it without love i gain nothing nothing john newton would say a man may almost starve his body to feed his pride it's true There are great charitable acts and noble gestures that can be done for all kinds of reasons. Some do them to earn favor with God. I tell you, it's without love. Some because it simply makes them feel good or feel good about themselves. That's without love. Some do it out of a sense of civic pride or because it's the current cause celeb or or to pay it forward. Because it's what good people do. That's not love either. But if any and all of those fail of love, then the way the next few verses will define it, and he will define it, it'll gain us absolutely nothing. And so that begs the question, as you work through the passage, if if that's so important, well, what is this love then that is so important to being part of the body of Christ and the exercise of my gifts? How does that work? And so the first thing he does is he takes us to the anatomy of love. And as I've mentioned already, in love there is a necessary interior and exterior dynamic. The two have to be tied together. In other words, you can't just have outward behavior modification and be a nice person. Something has to be happening inside by the power of the Holy Spirit. So This necessary interior and exterior dynamic. So, the structure of these verses is key to understanding what what this whole thing is really all about. They're, in fact, a series of couplets. We'll work through them in a second. Um, Each couplet refers to both aspects it has an interior disposition that results in an exterior action. The two have to be tied together, they're connected. Love, God's kind of love, as we'll see here, requires both sides of that coin in order to have value. And you know, if you've got a coin in your pocket, you need heads and tails to make it have value. If you cut it in half lengthwise, it's worthless. That's the same in spiritual truth. So, love, he says, is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So what does it look like to have the love that that makes room for a gift to be a benefit to the body of Christ? That's what he's going to unpack here for you. First, and he's going to do it again in these these, um, couplets. An interior gift disposition of patience manifests itself in kindness toward others. Love is patient inwardly, and that's why it's kind outwardly. Now, there are people that can be syrupy kind outwardly, but in in fact, they have no real patience inside. They're just trying to, to get you, manipulate you into doing something. But those who think they can use their spiritual gift without an outward kindness driven by an inward patience lie to themselves and negate their own gift. It's pretty stunning. Harsh and unkind people betray an inner problem which disqualifies them. Scripture's clear. We're to speak the truth to one another, but we're to do it in love. And Ephesians 4.15 tells us that this is how we grow into the image of Christ. We had it read for us just a short time ago. That's the end for which all the gifts are given. To help others grow in the character and in the image of Christ. So harsh and intractable, uncaring, gruff purveyors, even of God's word, fail to achieve the end for which the word is given. To conform us to the image of Christ. Because apart from love, no matter how doctrinally correct it is, it fails in God's mission. Two, or I'm going to run through these quickly. Uh, Not being inwardly envious will eliminate boasting. People have to tell one another about their accomplishments and their gifts and their abilities. And and we, we like to couch it in these terms. Oh, the Lord used me so wonderfully. False humility. Just a way of bragging by putting the Lord in front of it. But, but you see, when, when you aren't envious, you don't need to boast to other people about what the Lord's done. It, it just loses its, its power. And people just have to tell one another about their accomplishments, their gifts, their abilities, because inwardly they're envious of others. And that is, according to this, this passage, fundamentally unloving. It's love that isn't envious and therefore doesn't boast. If you have an inner drive to let others know what your gift is, you aren't concerned about their growth in Christ. You're concerned about your gift. And deep down, you want to be recognized for your gift as opposed to others. And recognition then of other people, if you don't get it, really grates you. In other words, you don't love third one love isn't arrogant and therefore it isn't rude rudeness comes from one thing thinking much about ourselves and little of others we take on the importance which relegates others to the un, to be undeserving of due consideration common decency and common courtesy evaporate uh, happen with your server at the restaurant lately So how we impact them then ends up meaning nothing. And how contrary this is to the humble spirit of Christ. Rude people do not love, despite imagining that their gift makes their rudeness inconsequential. It's just the other way around. Their rudeness makes the gift inconsequential. Wow. Fourth, because love doesn't insist on its own way, it isn't irritable or resentful. Now here's the fun one. If you are an irritable and resentful person, your problem is an interior problem that you are insisting on your own way. You number one. Needing to have my own way, especially in things that are non essential, reveals me for being the unloving person I am. So how love functions. So when I require that my personal tastes, my preferences, my opinions must at least be heard, if not catered to, I demonstrate my lack of love. Wow. I show that my first concern is not for others to experience the love of Christ through me, but demand that they show what I consider love toward me. And my gifts, no matter how extraordinary, are rendered useless in this this place. I think it's reasonable to say that in our in our current context, in our consumerist environment today, as perhaps never before, people are this way about the church. They grow insistent and irritable and resentful if they can't have it their way. The church just doesn't doesn't meet my taste. Okay. And isn't this a special watchword? Here, I will lump myself together with the right crowd for us older saints. Isn't it interesting that if we've been marinating in the love and the mercy of Christ for decades, we should be getting sweeter and more patient and more kind instead of more irritable and cranky and self-focused. You want to be counter-cultural? Be a really nice old person. You know how it is. Well, we'll say to ourselves, you know, the older I get, the less patience I have with, hmm, that should signal a problem, an interior problem. I recently spoke with a a fellow pastor, had a longtime member leave their assembly because they installed air conditioning. Now, Now, of course... I know people, it's right to leave a church if they don't have air conditioning, but I've never heard of one leaving because they did. But he said, after all, when the church was built and had been there for over 60 years, it didn't have air conditioning, and now it was going to be noisy, and some people were going to be cold, and he wasn't about to have it. Hmm. I find that problematic. And this did what? What? For anyone in terms of helping them grow in the image of Christ? Zippo. It's a great Greek word, Zippo. And then lastly, love rejoices with the truth, and that's why it doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing. These are the interiors and the exteriors. Now, uh, there's lots of people and there's lots of religion that tries to get you to do these outward things without the inward transformation. And I tell you, that's just man-made religion that's grit your teeth and try and make yourself a Christian. That isn't isn't New Testament Christianity. This is what the spirit works within our hearts and the interior so that it comes out in the exterior. This last one's an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? When others fall, when others who profess Christ are tripped up in their sin, we need to recognize some truths about that. that. That they are facing the same devil we're facing who delights to draw us into sin and, and they're facing the same wicked world that lures them into sin that we're facing and, and they're still fighting the same remnant of indwelling sin that, that we're fighting and, and apart from grace, we stand ready to throw things off too. I'm as likely to succumb to some temptation or some falsehood or some deception as anyone else. If we don't recognize that in ourselves, we won't rejoice with the truth, we'll rejoice in wrongdoing. And there are whole ministries built around that. Let's let's see how many other ministries we can pick apart. Uh, The same blood that I need to cover my sin is sufficient for those sins too. Their need is no different than mine and that need is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the truth is, I'm to be about the business of seeking that goal for both of us. Even if I do need to say that And I hope I don't need to say that if these are authentic, hear me, beloved, they will be manifested as much at home with our spouses, our kids, our parents, and our siblings, and our workmates as they'll be in the church. If you're this way in the church, but you're not this way at home, The interior and the exterior aren't together. That's not love. So, this is the kind of love Paul's unpacking here, and it results in these things. That love bears all things. This is what true love will do. It'll bear all things. It'll believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. It's a love which bears all things. It's, It's determined to love the body of Christ no matter how messed up it is. Just like Paul loved the church in Corinth, they were really messed up. They were were almost as bad as we are. People who say, oh, that church is so messed up, I need to go someplace else. They ain't no place else. The church is full of messed up people because of sin. And we learn to bear each other's sin as we point each other to christ how can i be committed to helping my brother and sister grow in the image of christ no i need to never stop proceeding on that course i need to bear all things it's a love also which believes all things that never steps aside from the promises of god's word as though they won't come to pass beloved jesus will return the work that he's begun in us will be completed. The image of Christ will be restored in us. The word does have its power. The Holy Spirit is at work. The church will remain until Christ returns, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Love stays there. And that's why it can stay engaged in the body, because he knows those, those truths. He doesn't rejoice untruth. It also hopes all things. Even in dire cases like, like two that we get, like the one back in chapter 5 where, where a man needed to be put out of the church because of his refusal to repent of sexual sin. Uh, Paul says we do this so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We don't want to lose him. We don't want to wash our hands of him. We want to restore him. And that's what this action is for. Or even with Hymenaeus and Alexander who had been spreading heresy, Paul said that he handed them over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme. I want to bring them back in. His goal wasn't mere ejection, it was restoration. Even church discipline is done with the hope of better things. Because the power of God and the gospel and the working of the spirit is still real. And therefore, love also endures all things. It, it keeps to this course no matter what. Love puts up with a lot. It takes its cue from Jesus in John 13, 1. I won't turn there. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The very ones who were going to turn their backs on him in just a couple of hours. So having established those first two points, how the absence of this kind of love negates the benefits of spiritual gifts are meant to bestow, and just what kind of love he's talking about, Paul now ties it all together by bringing us to see this, and that is the aim of love. And the aim of love is spiritual maturity for one another, growth in the image of Christ, obtaining his character. And I'll speed up here. I know we've gone long. I'm going to make a very bold statement here. I'm convinced that everything Paul has said so far in this letter and all that will come after, indeed the bulk of the whole Word of God in its entirety, crystallizes around this point. And if we don't understand this, we do not really understand the gospel in full, or the plan of redemption in full, or the purpose of God in the church, and the end of all the plans of God. Here he takes it up love never ends. At time just won't allow us to go into other passages that unfold my this last point really well. But sufficient to say that this is the core issue in our salvation. And if we miss it, we miss what salvation is at all. I'm going to cite just one verse that, which I already had read for us to help substantiate that. But once you see this principle, you'll see it everywhere in Scripture. For whom he foreknew, who Christ foreknew, he also predestined, To what? To be conformed to the image of Christ. That's his aim in your life. Nothing else. His aim isn't to make you happy. It's to conform you to his image, which will be the most glorious joy imaginable. But that's the goal. And that means changing who I fundamentally am into the character of the very Son of God. This is what he said. This is what the church is for. This is what it's all about. In a very real way, these two, 8 through 12, could be seen as Paul's own exposition of, of Romans 8, 28 through 30 and Ephesians 4, 10 through 16. This is the goal of our salvation. God's predestination and justification and our eventual glorification is all to bring us to the image of Christ. And as we'll see, our concept of spiritual gifts has to coincide with that plan. That's the idea. That means our lovingly seeking this same goal for our brothers and sisters and seeking to contribute to their lives to that end. I can't stress this enough. It means a life lived in the kind of love that's been shown to us in the previous verses. And why is this so important? Because it is how people are lovingly transformed. How? by being exposed to the grace of God experientially through us. Wow. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we'll get there in a couple of months. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How does that happen? Well, this comes from his spirit. And how are we exposed to the glory in the face of Christ? By his manifestation in us, through us, to one another. Now, Paul makes these closing points really quickly, but they're really important. Verse 8, love never ends. But gifts like prophecy and tongues and all the others, they will end once the goal's been reached. So don't make so much of the gift, they're only the temporary means to that end. Be more concerned with the end than you are with the means. Be absorbed with maturity in Christ, taking on his likeness yourself. His character is demonstrated in how he has done all to bring us to that place. Now do the same for others. And in verses 9 and 10, even the most profound revelations of, in prophecy are partial. But there is a perfect yet to come, a teleos, a becoming perfectly mature, growing up into him that's our, that's our goal. When the perfect, when that maturity finally comes, then the partial of all the, the spiritual gifts aimed at, a, at aiding in that maturity are going to lose their reason for being. Even in the natural, we all understand the progression of maturing, don't we? That we aren't born again and fully mature. We don't, we don't come out of the womb with shoes and socks on and glasses and, and speaking the language we don't as Christians either. When we're born again, we start young, and we need to mature. And he's telling us what that maturity looks like. It's the character of Christ. It's not just knowledge. It's his actual personality by the Holy Spirit, his character being birthed in us. No matter what, for now we only grasp a little of what we are to be, but one day we'll see him face to face. That's the picture. The picture that will be like... that that we'll be like his mirrors, that he'll look at us and see his own face perfectly reflected without distortion. We will know him then in something akin to the completeness with which he knows us already. That's what he's talking about here. Because that image will be established in us in our own nature. So now faith and hope and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is, is love. Faith is a magnificent gift. But one day we won't need it anymore because all his promises will have come to pass. Hope is a magnificent gift. One day we won't need that anymore either because all things will have been fulfilled. But love, that's the very nature of God himself. And that's the image we're supposed to bear. This is what it looks like to look like Jesus, to love as God loves. What can he bestow on us? What greater love can he show us than to make us like himself? because he's the most glorious of all. We can bestow no greater of love on one another than to help each other come to that same place, to throw off sin and to begin to bear the image of his character. Any gift we have now has to be employed only for this end. How can it help my brothers and sisters grow in taking on the character of Christ? That's the question. That's how I live in verses 4 through 7. If that's my aim, your aim then we don't even have to think about what our gift or gifts might or might not be. We only need to love them as outlined above. And the gifts will be granted in accordance when, how, and as often as the Spirit seems best to, to bestow them upon us. Which is why he begins then chapter 14 saying first off, well then, pursue love. Pursue love. And the management of all the gifts will fall under that umbrella. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you be gracious to fill us with your patience so that we might manifest your true kindness to one another? Would you take away every atom of envy so that we never boast again? Would you crucify our arrogance? so that rudeness disappears from us and let us gleefully relinquish the need to have things our own way so that we forsake irritability and resentment so fill us with the love of the truth that it becomes unimaginable to rejoice at a failing brother or sister in Christ as we seek to love each other this way by the power of your spirit let your gifts flow freely through us to enable each one to grow into this magnificent image of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray that in His name. Amen.